Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon. My name is Luke Carroll and welcome to the Sydney Ideas Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Mental Health Event. Today we're going to hear about those issues. We've got a guest panel of three great people that have been able to utilise their time to come and be a part of this discussion. We do thank them in advance for that. But before we do get underway, we want to do an acknowledgement of country. I'd like to welcome Bianca Williams to do that. Please make her welcome. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests and other members of the community we're joined here by tonight. My name is Bianca Williams. I'm a Barkindji woman descending from the far western region of New South Wales and a tiny little town called Brewarrina, which is very famous for its World Heritage listed fish traps. I wanted to share with you briefly a very short story in relation to an individual's pursuit of strength and ability to overcome adversity and strive against challenges that in a society at that time tried to quash any hopes this young woman had for a future outside of being a drover or living um, a lower level of life. This young woman was raised uh, by a family who again worked with cattle, so they moved around a lot, and she actually taught herself to read by reading off jam labels in the tip and also just little kind of signs that they would see um, whilst they were travelling around the country. When this young girl got the opportunity to go to school and was at the time again in relation to the policies of the day, people could complain and those Aboriginal people at that school could be forced to um, not attend and leave, which is a very unfortunate fact. Spurred on by this reality of uh, adversity and being forced to um, not want to see a brighter future, this young woman decided from a very early age that it would be important for her to take on a role to pursue excellence in education for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians in, this, in, in Australia. As a result, this young woman became a founding member of the Aboriginal Education um, Consultative Group, later became a student here at the University of Sydney in one of the first Aboriginal specific courses for educational assistance in the country, and later received an Order of Australia for her contribution and for her fight towards the advancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander education in Australia. And that woman was my grandmother, Dr Evelyn Crawford. And I stand here today... <laughs> ..stand here today carrying the strength that she had, and I extend the reality that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people everywhere carry with them the strength of their old people, their ancestors, the people who fought to make our realities accessible in today's context. And as a result, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are having a resurgence. We are facing many unfortunate realities with the most recent Closing the Gap report being um, and their, their findings in terms of things not actually improving as much as anticipated. But through events such as this, through such broader activities of the places like the University of Sydney, advancing the importance of Indigenous people having a place and a space here on campus and feeling comfortable and culturally safe through the establishment of the Centre for Cultural Competence and also Again, having a pivotal role at that senior level um, with our Deputy Vice-Chancellor acting, um, Professor Juanita Sherwood. 
It is for these reasons and many more that I stand here again very proudly tonight to acknowledge the land that we're meeting on. Can everybody please place their hand on their heart really briefly? The reason being is you, you feel that beat inside of your chest. It's a rhythm, it helps you stay alive. This very same rhythm is the connection Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people feel when they are on country and, and are connected. You can now remove your hands. The heartbeat of the land on which we are standing tonight has beaten very strongly for thousands of years for the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and into the future, and also extend that respect more broadly to all of our guests here tonight, because again, we all have a journey and we all have something to be proud of, and that is a defining factor in who we are as people. So I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope you again really think about that, that idea, that connection to country, it's like a heartbeat for somebody, and without a heart, you aren't surviving. Without connection to country, you can't thrive. Thank you. Thank you, Bianca. And I also want to have my own acknowledgement of country, I'm a proud Wiradjuri man, but I was born and bred on this beautiful land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And pay my respects to all Gadigal people that are present in the room and all the future leaders within the nation. Just a few objectives about what's to not, what tonight's all about. Some of the objectives we want to get out of this discussion. Uh, one of them is to raise awareness of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health and steps that can address the problem to showcase the university's commitment to diversity and inclusion, to enjoy a lively discussion about ac actively engaging both the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community in events across the campus, and to understand the importance of working with community on issues such as mental health. So there's some of the objecti objectives we want to get through tonight. Uh, we do have a keynote speaker, and we do have an opening statement before we get into our panel discussion. So I do want to introduce to the stage for an opening statement, Professor Juanita Sherwood. Please make her welcome. Um, welcome, everybody. It's great to see all your wonderful, warm faces. And I love being um, in the room when Bianca does an acknowledgement to country. She makes the room sing. And I hope you feel like the room is singing, because I can feel it singing. I just want to say I was very lucky to um, be grown up by elders like Annie Evelyn Crawford. I also became a member of the New South Wales Aboriginal Education Consultative Group. And it was a space and place where Linda Burney, uh, who's currently um, a federal politician, she was the director of, um, and president of the New South Wales AACG. And she critically led us all um, into having Indigenous education recognised into the curriculum in Australian education systems. This was a big move. And the reason that is important is that we're here today because of the movements of Annie Evelyn, Annie Beryl, and Annie Mavis, and a whole lot of others of those aunties, and Uncle Charles Moran, who fought very hard to have our knowledge, our history, our 95,000 years of history, recognised as important in this space. 
Now that's important being having our ways of knowing and being and doing recognised within the curriculum. Because when we don't recognise that, we fail to appreciate where Aboriginal identity is within um, our, our ways of seeing how we feel and think about the world. For 200 years and still, I mean, I, I witnessed it the other day, we have um, people who don't want to know about the history of this country. Australia has a black history. And it's really important that Australia recognises how critical our history and our knowledge of this country is to the sustainability of this world. And taking that away from Aboriginal people, not acknowledging the power of this really important knowledge and information, undermines our wellbeing. That, along with racism, have been key contributors to the mental, the unwellness that we often suffer from as a result of ongoing trauma. And I've done a lot of work into intergenerational trauma and racism and Australian government policy have done a lot to create the damage that our people have been living with. This is something that isn't often talked about. And this is why it's really important that you're here tonight, because Aboriginal mental health and wellbeing is and has been really impacted by colonisation. And so it's not just about recognising that people get sad, that there is suicide, and we've just lost one of our very dear brothers um, and my nephew just two days ago through suicide. We need to appreciate that we are damaging people by our lack of ability to recognise that Aboriginal people are really important to this country. We've never ceded our sovereignty. We are people who make a difference to Australia. And it's time that we rec are recognised in this space. That recognition will make a big difference in our wellbeing and our ability to be acknowledged as confident, safe young people and older people in health settings, in universities, in schools, even in police stations, in courthouses where people who don't have understanding of our history, of our context. These are the places that we need to educate and we need your help. We need you all to make sure that you ensure that you know and you promote Australia has a black history. And that is a really critical step towards improving our wellbeing in this country. And I'd like to say thank you, and I'm very grateful to be here tonight as the acting DVC, Indigenous Strategies and Services, and I know you're gonna have a, a very informative and very special evening. You've got great speakers who are going to speak with you tonight, and well done, Lou. Thank you again. Bye. Thank you, Professor Sherwood. Moving on to our keynote speaker for the evening. He's a gentleman that's doing so much great work in promoting mental health, mental health awareness throughout the country. I've known this gentleman for a very long time. He happens to be a, a cousin of mine. 
And I'm very proud of this, the work he's been doing in the communities as of late. He's also a proud Wiradjuri man, First Nations Aboriginal man, born in Cowra, raised in Wagga, New South Wales, Australia. He played in the National Rugby League for South Sydney Rabbitohs, the mighty South Sydney Rabbitohs, may I add, the Penrith Panthers and the Canterbury Bulldogs before switching to professional boxing in 2009. He's a two-time WBF World Junior Welterweight Champion and recently won the WC Asia Continental title. Although he has forged a successful professional career, Joe battled the majority of his life with suicidal ideation and bipolar disorder. After a suicide attempt in 2012, Joe felt his purpose was to help people who struggle with mental illness. In 2017, Joe was named as finalist in the National Indigenous Human Rights Awards for his work with suicide prevention and fighting for equality for Australia's First Nations people. Wagga Wagga Citizen of the Year in 2015 for his work within the community, mental health and suicide prevention sectors. Joe is also a published author, contributing to the book Transformation, Turning Tragedy to Triumph and his very own autobiography titled Defying the Enemy Within, which will be in stores in early 2018. He recently was also, has also been involved in filming of the worldwide documentary Suicide, The Ripple Effect, from director and fellow advocate Kevin Hines. Please welcome our keynote speaker for this evening, Mr. Joe Williams. Thanks, Luke. I too would like to acknowledge that we're gathered on, on traditional land. Uh, but I'll acknowledge in, in my language, the Radri language, one of the first things that a lot of people don't realise with colonisation that was taken away from us is our identity of who we are, what we represent and, and where we're going. And we're lucky enough now that through resurgence of, of bringing back language, bringing back culture, traditions, traditional way of life, uh, whether it be dance, whether it be artwork, whether it be a lot of ways, uh, we're slowly beginning to find that inner core of who we are as cultural people. So the first things that was taken away as us, as Aboriginal people, was our language and our right to speak in our own traditional tongue. In Wiradjuri language, Talang Niani Dumara Yindimara, Niani Gugumudigamaruldabuyala, which is today I pay more respects to the elders past and present. I'd like to see them type that up there in that language. <laughs> There's your test, all right? Look, I'm extremely lucky and grateful to, to be who, who I am, but where I am today. And that was, it was all because of the upbringing that I've had. Um, my upbringing was, I, I was extremely lucky to be, to be born into a family that my parents, my parents loved and cared for me and gave me absolutely everything that I, I tried to get throughout my life. My parents, I was, I was lucky enough to be able to get those. I was one of those kids who, you know, when, when, when your parents say, you know what, if you've got a dream, chase it. I was one of those kids that I was lucky enough that every dream that I had as far as chasing throughout my sporting career, I was lucky enough to achieve those dreams. Not by any means the heights I wanted to achieve them, but I achieved them to some state. You know, two major things happened to me at the age of 13. Really two major things that really set about my life. The first one was I signed my first NRL contract at the age of 13. I had six NRL clubs chasing and knocking on my door, ringing my parents during the week to say, we want to sign this kid, we want to get him down to Sydney and bring him through the NRL system. Now, my mum was smart. 
in the, in the, in the point that she, what she said was, I don't care, every single club that came and knocked on our door or, or presented themselves to my parents, every single club my mum said, I don't care what you give my son, how much you promise to give my son, the person who gives my son or the club who gives my son the best education is going to get him. Why that's so important is that I was finished playing footy at 24. I've got a hell of a long life to live, hopefully, post the age of 24. The other significant thing that happened to me is that I had a massive concussion. Now, a massive concussion that knocked me completely unconscious, where I ended up losing my memory for about three or four days, and I was, re I was really out of it. And it was during that week, now obviously we're starting to see a lot more studies around con concussion and what it actually does to the brain, and we're starting to see that concussions and brain trauma is actually a big cause in today's depression. Has anybody seen the film Concussion with Will Smith? They talk about the, the, the brain injury, brain illness called CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a brain disease, it's a degenerative brain disease that slowly um, you know, works and deteriorates the brain. I've been in America doing a lot of work and I've seen uh, specialists over in America and they tend to believe that I've got that illness. The only thing is that it, it can't be diagnosed until post-death. I spoke with a specialist and he said, do you want to donate your brain to study? I said, of course I do. Let me donate my brain. I'll, I'll do anything to, to help out people with the same sort of illness. He said, sweet, let's get it done. I said, do you mind if I keep my brain for a couple of years first? And I don't have to hand it over now, do I? He said, no, 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 we'll, we'll just sign, it, sign you off and wait till you die and then we'll chop it up and see what we can do with it then. What happened to me with that concussion? At the age of 13, right? is that it's the first time I remember experiencing suicidal ideation. At the age of 13, I had voices, terrifying voices in my head, telling me that I'd never amount to anything, that I'm not going to do anything with my life, and that I should end my life by suicide. So I had voices screaming at me every single day, telling me to kill myself. It's pretty frightening stuff for a 13-year-old. I just wanted to be a kid like anyone else, go out and play footy and, and meet friends and, and do all those things that the kids want to do. But I had this, this illness, these voices attacking my head and attacking my wellness every single day. You know those voices I talk about, that suicidal ideation, those voices that tell me I'm not good enough, second guess and question every decision I make throughout my life. I've had those from the age of 13 until today, right up until this very day. I could be driving down the highway and a voice will tell me to swerve into an oncoming car. No one would ever know it's an accident. You know, it's, um, it's pretty frightening when you've got your kids in the car and you've got these voices telling you that you should just kill yourself, not to mention the trauma that it would cause everyone else around me, the, the other driver and so forth, the, the pain and trauma to cause with that person. I soon thought that it was just what everyone went through. For me, I started to put little things into my life. You know, we're a family that, that struggled to get by. Like, we struggled to put food on the table some nights. We got by with things like love and care and, and having humility and respect for each other. Those four things I speak about, those four things 
are the very values that our old people used to live with before colonisation. Love, care, respect and humility. You know, pre-1788, before the boats turned up, we didn't have anything called suicide. We didn't have mental health problems. How do we know that? Because in over 350 different Aboriginal languages throughout the country, there's no word for suicide. Surely there'd be a word for taking your life if there was such thing as suicide. I managed to get my life on track with, with certain things. Like I said, we didn't have a great deal, so I couldn't go and, and speak about it to doctors or psychologists or psychiatrists. And there was this stigma around mental health, even more so back then, that I couldn't come out and say, hey, mum, I've got voices inside my head telling me to kill myself. I just sort of kept it inside and didn't want to say anything. These voices troubled me every single day. I went through my high school and... Why concussions are really important, I'll go back to that, is that I was playing first grade footy in the bush at the age of 14. So playing with my dad and, and other adults on the weekend and, you know, in, the footy in the bush, it's a little bit rough and tumble, you know, you get the odd late shot and you get knocked around the ears a little bit. Being a young bloke coming onto the scene, uh, I got my fair share of late shots and fair share of high shots. Um, it was all part of the game and that's what happened. The only way that I could manage these voices inside my head was through drinking alcohol. Through any sort of substance that I could get my hand on. I started smoking pot. I would drink alcohol. I was addicted to sniffing petrol at 14. These were the only things that could quieten down the noises and the voices that were going on inside my head. I didn't like the taste of it. I didn't like what it did to me. I didn't like the person that it turned me into. It was all to calm down what was going on in my head. I was lucky enough to move to Sydney and I graduated in playing in the NRL. And I played 50 odd games, which isn't a great deal of games. It's 50 odd more than a lot of people. But you know what? I'll be honest in saying the one thing that really held my NRL career back was the fact that I was so inconsistent with off the field because of what I was going through inside my head. There were days where I wouldn't leave my bedroom. There were days where I couldn't stand the sight of myself in the mirror. For me, turning up to training was a huge effort, let alone fighting for a position and fighting to be in the team. Fighting for my life was more important to me. The early years of playing in the NRL, I was drinking copious amounts of alcohol and taking ridiculous amounts of drugs. I'd drink as much as I possibly could till I couldn't stand up and then I'd take as many drugs as I could, enough to kill a small elephant to keep me going through the partying days. Again, not because I wanted that lifestyle, because that was the only thing that quietened down what went on through my head. My life was so destructive, it was affecting my football, it was affecting my relationships, it was affecting everything in my life. I was pushing people away, I was absconding from friends. This wasn't me. This wasn't the person who I'd grown up dreaming to be like. All my life I just wanted to be 
a footballer. But all my life, I just wanted to be a role model. I wasn't that at all. I had to make some decisions. And it seemed that alcohol and drugs were really taking over my life. See, I wasn't playing football now to be the best player I could possibly be. I was playing football to feed an alcohol and drug habit. It was so destructive. I said, well, something's got to change. I have to make a decision in my life where I'm going to either end up dead or in prison, and I certainly don't want that. So I made the decision to distance myself from anyone that would put me in the position of any sort of alcohol and drugs. I wouldn't turn up to parties. I distanced myself from family and friends. I lost interest in playing football because the only thing I had in common with the boys was training, playing, and it was partying, but I wasn't doing that anymore. I walked away from alcohol and drugs, and I won't lie, it saved my life. I walked away from alcohol and drugs, and it is now almost 12 years since I've touched a single drop of alcohol or any sort of drugs. You know, I talk about putting the substance into my body to turn down the noise. What happens when you take that substance away? The noise gets turned back up again. So all of a sudden, I had to deal with what it was I was going through. I walked into, into a, um, a psychologist and psychiatrist, and I was, I was medicated and diagnosed with bipolar disorder. You know, I thought my rugby league was like this. My whole lifestyle was like this. Bipolar disorder is severe highs and severe lows. Lows of depression and the highs of mania. I had to deal with it. And I walked away from rugby league and I needed something to physically keep me active. So I walked into a boxing gym. Now, I didn't walk into a boxing gym because I wanted to beat people up. I'm one of the least aggressive people you could ever meet. I didn't like fighting people. I certainly didn't like punching people and I didn't want to get my teeth knocked out. But I walked into a boxing gym and it taught me how to survive. Because when you're on those pads or on those bag and you've got everything in your head telling you to stop or to slow down or you're too tired, or even when you're in that ring and you've got someone trying to knock your face in, you don't want to be in there. You've got everything telling you to get out of there. So boxing taught me a resilience of a different kind. Boxing taught me that second by second, I have to pay attention to what's in front of me. Because my mental health battle is just like my boxing battle. Where if I give up in the boxing ring, I might get beat or get a black eye or a bit of blood. If I give up and don't fight in my mental illness battle, there's every chance I'll end up dead. And I'll tell you how that's the case. Those voices that I was telling you about, remember, every single day since the age of 13. I went through a, a fairly destructive marriage breakdown where I was separated from my family and I didn't get to see or speak to my kids. That's not their fault. That's not her fault. That was my fault. That was me and my doing because I was pushing everyone away. In that marriage breakdown and over a period of, say, 
18 months to two years, I'd repartnered and I'd had another child. And I'd separated again. Now I've got three children that I wasn't living with and all my life, all I wanted to be was a good dad. Now I've got three children to two separate relationships and wasn't living with any of them. I had voices, deafening voices, screaming into my ears that you're not good enough, Joe. You don't deserve to be here. You should kill yourself. I remember the day like it was yesterday. May 27th, 2012. I was laying down on the shower floor, almost pulling my hair out with these voices screaming at me. And I was flipping that coin. That coin that I guarantee you, every single person who dies by suicide flips that coin. Should I do it, should I not? Should I do it, should I not? Should I do it, should I not? I made my mind up. It was time for me to go. Not because I wanted to die. Not because I wanted, didn't want to be here anymore. But because I just wanted the pain to end. So I got out of the shower and I wrote notes to my children. I wrote letters to my children apologising that I'd never get to see them walk down the aisle. I'd never get to see them graduate from school. I'd never get to be the father that I promised that I'd be. But if they ever need me, just look up. I put my suicide note down directly next to my phone. Directly next to my phone on my bedside table. Now, how many times do we hear, my phone's always on, just call me. Copy and paste for suicide prevention. Send me an inbox if you need to talk. How many times do we hear it? When people lose someone to suicide, and I was talking to someone extremely close today, and she said, why, Joe? Why? Why didn't they call? Why couldn't they see that we loved them? Because in those dire, dire moments, we can't think of anything but taking the pain away. And the only way that we feel that we can take that pain away is by taking our life away. When I had my suicide attempt, I didn't want to die. I loved my kids. I loved my parents. I just wanted the pain to go. I sat that note down beside my bed. I had a drug overdose that should have killed me. I laid on my back content to think that I'd never wake up. You know, I came to the next day and I didn't, I didn't know whether to be thankful that I was alive or disappointed that I was alive. But I knew that I just tried to do everything I could possibly do with these two hands to not be here anymore. Something much bigger and more powerful than me kept me here. Whatever your faith, whatever you believe in, I believe as my old people put their hand on my shoulder and they said, it's not your time yet, boy. You got work to do. I was taken to the mental health ward. Now, when we talk about the mental health ward, we think of two things, right? Terminator 2 and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. 
We think only crazy people go there. We think people who are mad go there. I'll tell you what, I was shackled to a bed. I was told to take my shoelaces out. I was told to take my belt off. I was playing in the NRL two years prior to that. Now I couldn't be trusted with my own life. The doctor over that time in that mental health unit, he said to me, Joe, what you took and how much you took, you shouldn't be here anymore. You got a second chance at life, what are you going to do with it? Hearing those words from that doctor, I realised I had a second chance. I made a promise to myself that every single day I get to open my eyes, I'm going to make a positive impact on someone's life, no matter where I go. I've travelled and delivered my message to every state in Australia, North and South Island, in New Zealand, and 32 states around America, tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of young people, of students, old people, talking about my enemy within. Because you know what? I've played against some pretty fierce dudes on the footy field and some guys who wanted to knock me senseless in the boxing ring. A couple did, actually. But nothing ever compares to the enemy that I fight inside my head every single day. I made a commitment to myself to be well. I got back into the boxing ring, got back into the gym and started working on my wellness, what was good for me. I distanced myself from anything and anyone that was negative, that anyone that would cause me negative thoughts or negative harm. You know, as a guy who walked into a boxing gym and didn't want to be a fighter, like I told you, I'm one of the least aggressive people that anyone could meet. I know how to hold my hands up, but I'm one of the least aggressive people that you could meet. I won 12 out of 16 professional fights. Two of those were WBF world titles and a WBC regional title. It's not the belts I get to hang on the wall or the trophies I get to show in my cabinet. Boxing taught me how to survive. Boxing taught me how to win at life because my head tries to take me out every single day. I've penned my life story a little bit more in depth in my book that's on the shelf in January. That was a pretty shameless plug, wasn't it? My book's out in January, Defying the Enemy Within, because that's what I've had to do, defy it. You know, the one thing, and I talk, right, pre-1788, we didn't have suicides. Fast forward 230-odd years, we've now the highest suicides in the world. I've never even walked into a university, but you don't have to be smart to know that what they were doing back then is probably better than what we're doing now. I'm not telling you to go back and live in the bush and be a hunter and gatherer. I'm a hunter and gatherer by all means, but I just do it at Woolworths. <laughs> what I'm saying is start to live with a bit more empathy and a bit more love, respect, humility and care in your life. 
love for everyone and everything, care for everyone and everything, respect for everyone and everything, and have humility where you go. I'm not telling you to be perfect because none of us are. But the one thing that has kept me alive is helping other people. In Aboriginal culture, we have a thing called Napaji Napaji, which means to always give. Our only responsibility as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people before those wonderful boats turned up was share. All we did was share with each other. Now, if I share with you and you share with you and you share with you and you share with you, it eventually comes back round. Guys, I'm just so extremely lucky to be here today. I'm, I'm literally, I, I'm thankful every day. I'm thankful every day that I get to tell my story. I'm thankful every day when I open my eyes and breathe my first breath of fresh air. Because five years past the day I should have been dead. I'm grateful to do that. Thank you very much and thanks for having me in some Thank you, Joe, and uh, I've never heard you speak, brother, about your, your problems. I know we've had small discussions about it, but to speak in front of an audience like this, uh, it's pretty powerful, brother. So, yeah, once again, please put your hands together for Mr. Joe Williams, everyone. Now, Joe is one of our guest speakers on the panel, and we will go directly into our special panel that we have here this evening. If you do hear your name, please come onto the stage, all our guest speakers, once you hear your name. Dr. Vanessa Lee is a senior lecturer, Faculty of Health Services, University of Sydney. She's a member of the Yupanguthi people and Merriam people in the Torres Strait, but resides on the land of the Gadigal people. She is a social epidemiologist who is focused on health issues affecting the Indigenous community, as well as broader questions of cultural competence. Dr. Lee is a board member of Suicide Prevention Australia and Chair of Public Health Indigenous Leaders in Education Network. Please make her welcome. Our third speaker is Mr. Percival Knight. Percival Knight is a PhD candidate, Wingaramura Leadership Program, Sydney Business School. He is the first Indigenous PhD candidate within the University of Sydney Business School and has qualifications in Indigenous social emotional well-being and a Master's in Applied Science. He is an ambassador for the Black Dog Institute and the NRL in delivering the ABC Connect programs on mental health to Indigenous communities in rural New South Wales. He is also a visiting fellow at the Centre for Aboriginal Policy and Economic Research at the Australian National University. Please make him welcome. And our fourth panellist is Willow Mulwada from the Kalkadoon and Eastern Arunda Nations. Big round of applause while he makes his way up. He is an employee at the University of Sydney in Health Sciences and has been involved in a range of health activities including HIV health and his current work on breast screening for Aboriginal women. Sorry. Please make them all welcome. Well, everybody grab a drink. 
going to have a bit of a discussion, a few questions, and we'll try to maybe open up a few questions to the audience, depending on time. Hopefully we don't run over in time. Talk fast. Talk fast. I'm good at that. <laughs> now, I do want to set the scene firstly behind the difference between mental health and suicide prevention. Mental health is very much about conditions that are diagno diagnosable, treatable, and non-treatable. Whereas suicide prevention may be dealing with things that have nothing to do with the individual having a mental il illness and instead might be socially or economically challenged. It could be a case of a loss of a job, a breakdown in relationships, or a marriage. They're the differences. I just wanted to set that scene before we get into our discussions. So welcome one, welcome all. And thank you once again, Joey, for those very strong words. But we'll start with you, Vanessa, Dr. Lee. Of course. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful before the men. Now, when it comes to mental illness, talk us through what the data is telling us. Uh, okay. Um, hello, everybody. I'm Vanessa. I'm a social epidemiologist. I also would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of which we sit upon today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And like Percy said, I'm also a visitor, as my people are from Yupungathia, Miriam. Um, so with a lot of the data, so you've got to remember that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people we don't use the terminology of mental illness, and that is a very general term. We use the terminology social and emotional well-being. And when your social emotional well-being breaks down, that means that your connection to your family, to your community, to your identity, to the people around you, your friendship-based, your community, is all breaking down. So recently I was in Canberra and, um, and I found out that there has been a sudden increase in Indigenous identity. 150,000 people are identifying as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on the eastern shores of Australia. 150,000 people that are not registered in births. 150,000 people, non-Indigenous people, over the age of 25, now identifying as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Why is that an issue for social and emotional wellbeing? That's an issue because identity is who we are as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Identity is connected to jobs and employment. 52% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have committed suicide or passed away from intentional fatalities were unemployed, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people people that live on the poverty line, people that are homeless. We have the highest female homeless rate in Australia, Aboriginal women in New South Wales. So 150,000 non-Indigenous people suddenly identifying as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people correlates with the employment where opportunities are being offered to those who identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at senior levels. And those people over the age of 25, we also found, are highly educated. So they're looking for jobs. So we are now looking at these people, these non-Indigenous people that are stepping up over the age of 25 with a higher education qualification saying that they're Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. The reason we have identified positions is A, Employment is, is correlated to health. Good health, high employment, good health. It gets people out of poverty. 
if you have a job, there's every chance you won't be homeless. We have the highest homeless rates in Australia. It gets food on the table. Suddenly our families aren't going to be charged with neglect and children won't be removed because people have a job and they can put food on the table. 150,000 non-Indigenous people suddenly identifying as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is a direct link to mental illness and social emotional well-being breakdown. Because when I say to you, unemployment, poverty, food, those are the social determinants of basic living. If they aren't addressed, your social emotional well-being is cut. Is cut, is cut, and trauma sets in. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have the highest diagnosis of mental illness associated with trauma in Australia. So not only do we have the highest homeless rates, we have the highest rates of mental illness associated in Australia. In a study done by the ABS, the NATSIS, in 2014 when the data was released, they identified that 89% of 10,000 people in that study identified as having a psychological distress. 49% of the people identified directly as receiving overt racism. Majority of the, the fatalities, 85% were by hangings. That is a complete breakdown in our society. It affects every single one of us. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, social emotional wellbeing breakdown and suicide isn't an Indigenous problem, it's an Australian problem. Thank you. Thank you. Percy, as a researcher in the field, tell us about some of the things you're working on and indeed seeing out there in the communities. Um, <clears throat> well, we've, um, for the last two years, I've been sort of acting as an playing an ambassadorial role with the Black Dog Institute. Basically, as a, as a way of helping a, a former teammate of mine who was suffering um, pretty, pretty much uh, depression during, our, during his footy days. Um, it, wasn't really, um, it wasn't really known to me, and I, I, I sort of thought I was a very observant sort of a person, and I don't know why I missed that. But some of the stories that he's told me since post-retirement um, is unbelievable that he's still around today. Mm. You know, rugby league in the NRL um, in, the, in any decade is, is a very brutal game. It's not a very simple, it's not a very hard game to play. It's very simple. Um, it's very yeah. <laughs> if you play Koori style, it's pretty That's simple. It. But... Um, you know, so we've been going out to communities um, for the last two years with, because uh, wherever Wayne, uh, yeah, my, my, my teammate went, um, he came across a lot of Indigenous communities and he said he struggled with that a little bit. So I thought, well, mate, I'm happy to give you a hand if, if that's what you want. So we went out to places like Dubbo and Burke and Brewarren there. Um, um, we went out to Wilcannia uh, and 
Well, Kenya is, is, is although I'm a Wiradjuri man, a Kalari man from Kandobal in the Central West, uh, I have uh, family connections to the Barkindji mob as well, okay? Uh, yeah, through my dad's side and through my mother's side. Um, so we, we went to those places and I said, you look, you really got to have a conversation with this mob. You know? don't, don't talk at them, all right? Just talk to them. Um, you know, uh, I was exposed um, to, to uh, mental health issues when I was a young kid, probably 9, 10, 11. I, I grew up on an Aboriginal mission. I went to a mission school in my, my, early, um, my early education. Um, but I was fortunate that I could play footy. Um, there was a lot of other kids in town that could play footy as well, but um, I was playing first grade, and as you're right, Joe, pointing out that when you're playing first grade as a kid in country football, you soon know what it's all about. Uh, and when they hit, they stayed. They had this sort of philosophy that they can't run without heads. Um, and even as I sort of went into my rugby league career with Balmain and later at the Canberra Raiders, um, I become known as, as, a, as a ball playing footballer. Um, you know, play that sort of was the number six or number seven jumpers. It's kind of considered the, the brains of the team. It moved the team around. Um, and, you know, I had, I, had all, I had this little skinny little black fellow that played out on the wing uh, called Larry Corowa. Now, in those days, in the 70s and uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, I mean, the way they used to put Larry and I off our game is they used to racially, um, you know, we would call all sorts of things. But then they had the audacity to want to have a drink with us after the game. I said, nah, mate, it goes a bit deeper than that. All right, you know, a beer or that one. And uh, what, what you did out in the field today, these were pretty high profile players in the game. Did you know, uh, there was no racial uh, vilification around in those days. I mean, you, you got racially abused in, in the most orrids of, of, of way. And I said to um, my mate Larry and, and, and another Indigenous guy that played in the same team called uh, David Grant, he came from Trangi, uh, Ningen. I said, mate, look, we shouldn't take this crap. And I said, well, what do we do? I said, well, we've got to sort of, we've, we've got to sort of um, let people know. But you see, when we started talking about these things after the game, we were, we were classified by our coaches and by the media as whinges, all right? Oh, that doesn't hurt. I said, well, bloody oath it hurts. It hurts deep. So... Later on in my life, I, when I started to slow down a bit, but I've got a lot more craftier and, and a lot more sort of brilliant. And I always thought that I had a playing style, that, that I could see things were going to happen on a certain tackle. Now, I could see, but my teammates couldn't see it. And um, I think it was a, like a, a playing style that, that we've had, and Joey's at it. And, and, and funny, Joey sits here tonight, and I haven't met Joey before, but I've, I know his dad very well, Will. Even I had a few sort of dust-ups on the... On a, Will used to play for um, the Eastern Suburbs Rooster. Um, 
but we were we were friends and and uh, you know he he said look we you know we'd have a chat after the game and and, and, a, and a few soft drinks uh, and he would say mate I know what you mean I know it's, it's terrible so it's good to see that the game in recent time has cleaned up its act a, a, a bit but it's still a brutal sport um, you know my role with the uh, that I played as an ambassador role with the Black Dog Institute was to go along and support my, my, my mate. Uh, and when you make friends in football, you have them for life. And that's, that's a, a great thing about sports. Uh, but as I said, look, I grew up, although out in Radri language, we, we, have, we don't have a word for suicide prevention. And, mm. And I think this social and emotional well-being that we tag mental health issues is just watering down the, the real problem. Our mob, and I used to get this a lot as a, as a kid growing up, was some, a lot of our men in the community were, were, were coming back from the, you know, World War II and, and so forth, and, and they had the scars of war. Um, so they, they received a lot of, um, you know, not, not so much support as much, but they got back to their community and they felt safe. But the ragey word that we used to sort of, and our, our aunties and uncles and talk to said, well, you know, I'll say, what's wrong with old uncle? You know, he's a bit angry today. They said, well, he's, he's a little bit guangy. All right, and we said, oh, okay. Guangi, what's that mean? So, well, you know, he's, um, he's, 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 not, he's not mental as such, right? He's just sick. And when our kids used to walk around and calling each other Guangi, you know, without realising what we were doing. Um, but, you know, those, those early days are sort of, it, it, I took a real interest in, in then seeing that the pain and trauma that it, it had on our family and our community. I mean, we, we lived down the Lachlan from, from uh, 43 acres there at Carra. Um, so, but we had a great sort of uh, relationship. But, um, you know, as you sort of grow and you mature and, um, you know, you, you, you go on to the life pathways and sometimes it takes you in all different directions. And, you know, you never stop learning. You take these little things that have happened to you as, as a kid growing up and that you use it as tools in your life to become a better person. Now, with the, the Black Dog Institute, um, sorry, doing the, uh, we were delivering the, the ABC Connect program. Uh, and, and Wayne and I were, have been very successful in getting the message out there. You know, I think there is a, a statistic at the moment to say that 64% of, of, of people suffer some mental health problems but don't receive treatment. They suffer in silence. That's the worst thing you could do. And our mob, you know, used to suffer in silence a lot. And this message is, hey, look, now put your hand up. If something's wrong with you, it's like my old auntie said, there's nothing wrong with uncle, he's just a bit sick. 
as simple as that. So he's just a bit sick. Didn't quite understand what what was going on. Uh, you know, in, the, in 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 you know, in their time of of being sort of disabled a bit, they felt that I've got this 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 enormous. Um, voice in my head that's telling me to do terrible things and very much like Joe was, was talking about earlier. And it's, it's true. Um, you know, the more that we get the message out that, listen, and we, we Joe, uh, sorry, um, Wayne and I uh, went to a lot of schools and so forth and, and everybody was listening intently and respectfully. In fact, you know, when you look at the, 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 the 10 core values of the ethics process, they're very similar to the Rajari word Yindamara. It's about respect, right? It's, it's about belief. It's about uh, reciprocity. It, it, it's, you know, it's about leadership. Um, so I, I understood that very well and, and, and I say to the, particularly the group of kids that if you take those core values and put them in your pocket and you live by those core values throughout your life, a journey that you go through in life, and, and, and live by those core values, then you'll have a very good and successful life. You will have your moments when everything seems like it's, you know, the, the world's going to end. But the important thing is Look, speak to your friends. Uh, speak to somebody about these problems. Speak to, you know, I used to say, look, you know, speak to your, your mum and dad or, or your uncle and auntie. Um, sp speak to your, your school teacher or speak to your, your sports or your teammate. And I said, look, even speak to your own dog. You know, I said, although they may think that's a bit rough. <laughs> And that never got a laugh either. <laughs> but they, um, and, and it's, it's true, these, these young kids, you can see that they've all got a story to tell, particularly out in rural, rural New South Wales. Uh, and, uh, and those areas that we, we went into, um, you could feel the unwellness of the place. Um, Will Kenya, you know, I talk about that because a lot of my mother's family come from Wilcannia. Um, and through the assimilation integration process since the 1967 referendum, they were relocated from Wilcannia to Lake Echelico near Condoblin. Um, so, you know, with, with mental health, there's no quick fix. But the most important thing is, look, be honest to yourself, you know. If you're going to, look, when you're feeling sick and when you're feeling alone and that, you know, the person that you have the most conversation with is who? Is yourself, you know? So, so look, you know, speak to somebody about it. There's no shame in, in being mentally sick. I said, that's bullshit, you know? You know I said, shame won't feed you. Don't worry about shame. If you're sick, if you're, if you're not feeling well, or if you, if you, you know, well, look, you know, go and speak to your dog. Take your dog for a walk and, 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 and talk to the dog. I mean, but what I'm trying to say is that please speak to somebody or, or get it 
get it off your chest and then go and seek help. I say to people, mental illness is just like physical illness. You're not going to walk around with a broken leg and pretend it's not there. You're going to go and get help for it. That's a physical illness, right? Mental illness is just an illness of the brain. Yeah. The brain's the biggest, most powerful organ in the body. You're yeah, right, Joe. It's when, one we neglect the most. And, and one of the things that we, we, we speak to them about the, in the ABC Connect program is, look, your brain is a muscle, mm. right? But it's a very complicated muscle. So you can train your brain, because one side of your brain gives you negative thoughts, and the, there's one side of the brain that gives you positive thoughts. So yeah, keep building up your, your side of the brain that mm. keeps feeding these positive um, these positive things that you're hearing all the time. You know, keep building those up and your muscle will respond. Now, this is, you know, as I said earlier, your brain is, is, a, is, a, is a very complicated sort of um, um, muscle, uh, but it can be trained. You can train your brain to actually say, you know, don't think of the most negative things. And, and we, as Indigenous um, people, when we have sorry business, we all feel it. I mean, you know, we, we, we feel this grief. And it's not, it's not too bad to grieve over somebody that you live, but you've got to find, also find a positive out of it, you know, really depending on the cause of death, of course, you know. So, you know, instead of getting together and then go to a funeral and then head down to the pub, that's not the answer. That's not the answer. That's just, a, you know, a cheap way out. So um, it, it certainly is, is a topic that, that I've, um, I've really grown to, you know, in the last couple of years. And I learned a lot from, from my old Balmain teammate. And, uh, the Black yeah, Flash, eh? Yeah, the, the, the Flash. And uh, <laughs> they say that Balmain boys don't cry, but they whinge a lot. <laughs> As if you read Facebook, you'll, you'll see that. <laughs> with, uh, but, um, He's always into it. <laughs> yeah. So... And, uh, you know, we're, we're all connected in, in, in some way. We may come from different cultures and whatever. But as human beings, we're all wired the same. As human beings, we're yeah. wired the same. Okay? And we're all suffering, and particularly in rural New South Wales and Sydney and, and cities and so forth. You know, 64% of the population uh, never seek help. That's been diagnosed with, but never seek that sort of ongoing help. And he, the indigenous population is, is a lot higher than that, apparently. Yeah. We're talking about that. We're talking about suicide. We'll jump on the, to the issue yeah. of suicide. Now, Vanessa, this question is directed to you. Now, let's turn back to the suicide data that was released last month in September. Now, there were 162 deaths due to suicide last month. 119 of those were male, 43 were female, which was the fifth most common cause of death for last month. Now, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention Research tells us that for every suicide, there are 25 attempts. Now, that would suggest that about 4,050 of our people attempted suicide in the last reporting period. But why aren't we hearing about those figures? And why those figures, are they, they're so big, why aren't we hearing about those figures in community? Okay, so, I'd like, so the, the, that American data, it's really good to to listen, like to take examples from international communities, and that's fantastic. Um, in Australia, we also have the um, the ATSIPEP report, which highlights a lot of the issues in the data. And the ATSIPEP report is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Evaluation Prevention Program, Prevent Suicide Prevention Evaluation Project. That's it, all the acronyms. 
And um, so in that report, it actually highlights a lot of the data that you're suggesting, and it also highlights recommendations of how to address the, the issues in communities and how to engage with community. And Willow, you, you actually know, do a lot of work in engaging with communities. And so when you look at the data, sorry, I just would like to ask that with Willow. Willow, when you look at the data, and when you look at the data and how you then explain it to community, so what sort of engagement do you need? I think like when we start to look at stats around these issues with suicide, HIV, which I'm sort of more familiar with, which has doubled here in Australia now. The non-Indigenous population sitting at 3.1 and the Indigenous population now moving to 6.8, uh, mostly young people. These are pretty scary uh, statistics to take to a community. Mm. How do you broach that with community? Really, the best my experience with working communities is start to identify key stakeholders in the communities, elders, women's groups, men's groups, church groups, all the groups that are, uh, hold some sort of power and respect in the communities and start to form uh, a dialogue and explore it because a lot of the times the information is not in the communities so there's no promotion about the different approaches that are taken internationally or by non-Indigenous groups. We need to translate that across. It's knowledge translations, and then transferring the different programs into those communities. It's a very structured approach that needs to be taken, but from the community's point of view, it has to fit into the, the cultural aspects and the structures that have protocols and values attached to them there. And I think that's been one of the biggest failures in Australian government is, and a lot of Australian non-Indigenous uh, non organisations is, so the funding to address suicide and address um, social emotional wellbeing or mental health in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people has gone to organisations that have that, don't have that cultural awareness and don't know how to work with community and, and don't know how to ask community how to work together. And, and they're telling and they go into the community and all we're seeing is an escalation of suicide rates, an escalation of identified diagnosis of mental illness. And that doesn't work. It's the same problem we're having with the Close the Gap report. You get, you're getting health outcomes that are still going up instead of closing because we've got non-Indigenous organisations coming in delivering programs and telling Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people how to live it's and how to do closing the Gap report. That's what I said, didn't I? Close. Two separate, two separate reports. Closing the gap closing report. Yeah, got you. That's the one I meant. Um, and the closing of the gap report, um, with that, we've got non-Indigenous organisations delivering these programs and getting poor outcomes because they don't know how to engage with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah, and in the Productivity Commission in 2015, they identified that $80,000, 80 80 80%, sorry, not $80,000, 80% of Indigenous funding, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander funding, were going to non-Indigenous organisations. Now, if those organisations were making an impact, we wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Mm. And it's been going on for over 200 years. That, the data is out there, and it's how people read the data and interpret the data. So, and getting that information to communities, let me tell you, we already know what's wrong. We already know the problem as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Willow can tell you straight out, 
we already know the HIV rates in our communities. We know the stigmas around sexual health and HIV. We know the stigmas around LGBTIQ people. We know the mental health issues, the social emotional wellbeing that is happening in our communities. And we know the solution. Yeah. We know the answer. We know what's going on and we know how to fix it. And we are slowly making the change ourselves. But we actually need non-Indigenous people to walk together with us and stop trying to dictate to us and stop trying to tell us what to do and how to do it. Our people survived over 100,000 years. They didn't survive just sucking in air. They survived on the land and the environment. They knew what to do and how to do it. And they didn't survive on lies and the lack of integrity that I shared with you earlier with 150,000 people recently identifying as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Now, non-Indigenous organisations need the, they want the funding. They want the Indigenous funding. It's become, it's come a, it's become such a pathetic, discriminative process. You just tick a box and say you're Indigenous, you're Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Get a statutory declaration. You know what, if you go to community, those people probably won't even exist. We won't even know the surname. Gone is the time when you could stand there and say, I'm stolen generation. Because there is enough services by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities that can identify people from stolen generation. They may not be identify your family or any living family, but they can certainly identify which country in Australia you came from, which Aboriginal country, which land. Gone are those days. Non-Indigenous people need to start waking up and asking those questions. Asking people about real identity because we know and we also know the solutions. And when you link the data and you start looking at the policy, the policy isn't meeting the health outcomes that it should be. And that falls back on service delivery. And like we've already said, those services 80% of the funding is going to non-Indigenous organisations and those services are not delivering. Walk with us. I'll ask this question. Yeah. I'll, ask, I'll ask this question from, 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 from the other perspective. If you've got a non-Indigenous problem within these communities, would you like somebody completely foreign to knowing who you are and what you're about and where you come from and how to fix you to come in and tell you how to do it. No way in the world you would do it. No way in the world would it work. That's the reality we live every day for the past 230 years. We need you to help us as well because we, we all live here now. We're sick of our people being incarcerated 20 times more than you, dying 15 years younger, more than, younger than you, dying by suicide at incredible rates more than you. We want, we want to be on a level playing field. We want to be just like you. You might not want to be like us on the sporting field. We, you might not want to be like us on the dance floor. But I don't want to be like you. I love being <laughs> Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. I love my culture. You know what I mean. <laughs> Hello, Joe, I agree you, with you. I think the expertise does lie in communities. The knowledge is for community well-being, of ways of being and doing, mm. and all the protocols that go with it are existing in our communities. Yeah. Mm. It's about building those relationships with those communities, engaging them, 
and starting to not only engage those relationships but maintain, you know, meaningful relationships with all the different stakeholders, not only here nationally but internationally as well, our Indigenous peers in Canada, in the United States, in Africa, in New Zealand, across Polynesia and Melanesia, Southeast Asia. We are not isolated alone here. We do have a lot of nations around us and their relatedness to our lived experience is connected to them as well. Mm. The uh, community wellness is a good focus because of the compounding issues of all the different determinants in health that affect people. Most of us Indigenous people have impacted, uh, impacted by suicide. We know it in our families. Myself, I've been in hospital with my grandson and spent a month when he tried to hang himself. And he had a, you know, a promising career in boxing as well. But that's finished now, after that episode, at 14. So he now just does what other boys in the community do. And I come from a community, Palm Island, and Mount Isa. So these are communities that have other issues. Yeah. We have a high population of young people, more than people my age live there, yet the youth uh, centre is not focused on engaging these young people and giving them activities that are meaningful to them and supporting them to find pathways in career and education. And they want to be responsible and have a house and have a woman or a husband and have children and all the dreams that they see on TV. But uh, it's not possible sometimes in our communities mm. because of all of the, the arguments that we're having with non-Indigenous people or with government, there always seems to be a barriers put up or funding's being cut or we have people flying in and flying out, doing services. When we have expertise on the island, people who've been through the university have degrees in that and what are they doing? Absolutely. They're not working, you know. Thank you, Willow. And um, I was going to open up the discussion to the floor, but unfortunately we are running out of we've run out of time. But as you would respect, this issue does need its airtime, and so I do make no apologies for that. Um, but if you do want to talk to our panelists, they will be around until eight o'clock, eight thirty. Two in the morning. <laughs> we do have drinks and canapes being served, so please join me in thanking all of our panelists for tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.